You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 4 this morning, beginning at verse number 1. And when Saul's son heard that Abner was dead in Hebron. His hands were feeble, and all the Israelites were troubled. And Saul's son had two men that were captains of bands. The name of the one was Bana, the name of the other, Rechab, the sons of Rimon, a Barathite of the children of Benjamin, for Baroth also was reckoned to Benjamin. And the Barathites fled to Gittim, and were sojourners there until this day. And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame of his feet. He was five years old when the tidings came of Saul and of Jonathan out of Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it came to pass, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. And the sons of Ramon, the Berathite, Rechab and Benana went and came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who lay on a bed at noon. And they came thither into the midst of the house as though they would have fetched wheat, and they smote him under the fifth rib, and Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. And when they came into the house, he lay on his bed in his bedchamber, and they smote him and slew him and beheaded him and took his head and gat them away through the plain all night. They brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David to Hebron and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy, which sought thy life. And the Lord hath avenged my lord the king this day of Saul and of his seed. And David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Berthite, and said unto them, As the Lord liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought that I would give, had given him a reward for his tidings. How much more when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed. Shall I not therefore now requite his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they slew them and cut off their hands and their feet and hanged them up over the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the sepulcher of Abner in Hebron. This is the word of the Lord. And may our eyes be open to the truth of the text this morning. Have you ever thought in your heart that you knew what someone loved or desired? I mean, you thought you had it pegged. And when you did that event, it only turned out that you were sadly mistaken. Years ago, my wife and I were just married for about two years. I just returned from the service, I came home to Cleveland, um, and I had an obsession afterwards with guns. This is an American story, so bear with me, all right? I have since saw the light. 
And um, so, so a matter of fact, when my firstborn was, was born, I bought a brand new shotgun. And I have a picture of my baby son next to my shotgun on the bed. It was a beautiful sight. And I can remember vividly one uh, Valentine's Day in February, thinking, I know exactly what Kim wants. And so I bought her a gift. I wrapped it in a nice little pink box, about, I don't know, four by four with a nice bow on it. I handed it to her on that Valentine's Day and said, here you go, sweetheart. I know you're going to love it. And she opened the box, and in the box I had purchased for her a 25 caliber pistol. And to my surprise, she was not happy. <laughs> I really believe that that was the desire of her heart. That if I just wrapped up that gift, she would be pleased. So the following year, I just wrapped up myself, and now I'm batting 0 for 2. All right? I don't know that it was so much her heart's desire as my selfish desire back then. But in the story, we have two men that believe they knew the desire of the king, only to find out that they were tragically mistaken. And so let's look at the text this morning. We continue to see the transition from Saul's kingdom to the dynasty of David. And I want you to remember this as we work our way, not only through Samuel, but through all of the Old Testament. When you see kings, and you see prophets, and you see priests, and you see heroes, and champions, and saviors, they are all an imperfect picture of what is to come. So when we read the Old Testament, and we find a champion, or a king, or a hero, or a deliverer, it is a foreshadowing of the one who would come, who would be the perfect prophet, priest, king, savior, deliverer, Jesus Christ. And even where we find ourselves this morning, you, you have the author reminding us that Saul's kingdom, a kingdom chosen by men, is coming to an end. And yet the kingdom chosen by God is going to flourish, become a dynasty, and last forever. And in that, it reminds us this morning that the kingdoms of this world are becoming, will become, the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Remember that. That's the point. And so in this text, the author now is showing us the fact that Saul's kingdom is now unable to lead, and there will be a transition. And so he starts by giving us an example, and he gives us an example of two men in Saul's house. The first is Ishbosheth. We've talked about him already. And it's interesting to note in the first verse that it says, when he hears that Abner died, his, his great captain, the, the commander-in-chief of the armies of Israel, is dead now. Isbosheth, it says his hands are feeble. Feeble. And the point is that in Saul's house now, they cannot continue because Isbosheth lacks courage. He lacks courage. And so... There is no courage to lead. There is no courage to perpetuate the kingdom. He is feeble. And what I find amazing in this text is it says of Ishbosheth that he has two captains, men that he has chosen. And come to find out, as weak as he is, the men that he has chosen are much more weak. Here are two men who, two of them, 
they, they, they jump on one weak man in his house taking a nap, and they kill him while he's sleeping. It is the epitome of weakness. Davis writes this, he says, this is the equivalent of a bully junior high kid beating up a five-year-old. And that's what's just taking place. And it amazes me that here is a weak man, and weak men gravitate to him. Do you know this morning that water seeks its own level? You, you certainly know that, right? Water seeks its own level. And we have a tendency to gravitate to people that are like us. You see this in Samuel again with David. David kills Goliath as a young man, maybe 17 years old. And in 1 Samuel chapter 21, there's a list then of all of David's men who now suddenly become giant killers. And they flock to David. And let me remind you this morning that, that who we are like or who is like us will gravitate to who we are. Weak believers usually surround themselves with weak believers. People who gossip and who are critical. Usually most of their friends are gossipers and critics. Nominal believers are not comfortable with spiritual believers. And men and women of integrity usually gather around them men and women of integrity. And so I would just challenge you this morning to take a look at your friends. Take a look at the people who are gathered around you. Because kind produces kind. If you're not happy this morning with your association, then by the grace of God, change it and be the man or woman you're supposed to be. But here's a man who is weak. Saul's kingdom cannot go on because Isbosheth lacks courage. But there's a second example in verse number four. And this is the example of Mephibosheth. I don't know what's going on with the names of kids during these days, but it's really hard, right? And here's Mephibosheth. And, and we'll see him again later in chapter nine. But this is Jonathan's son. And, and here is Jonathan's son. Uh, Jonathan goes out to battle with his father. They are killed in battle. Word comes back to Israel, and now they flee. And, and in their haste, his nurse grabs this little boy at five years old. They trip and they fall, and now he is crippled. He's crippled. At this time, he's probably about 15 years old. And so Saul's kingdom cannot lead because they lack courage, and now they lack ability. This 15-year-old crippled boy cannot lead a kingdom. And this is the example that's given. Now, verses 5 through 7 give you the event, the center point of this passage. And I want you to know something very interesting in verses 5 through 7. This is a great example of of Hebrew narrative. When the writers of Hebrews write a, a story or a verse or a chapter, oftentimes to make a point, they will tell you word for word, this is what happened, and the following verse will repeat exactly what was just said with one additional detail. Okay, And they do that to draw attention to what they're saying and to make a powerful point. So watch this in verse number 5 of our text. These guys, the sons of Ramon, uh, Rechab, and Baana, they come into, they went and came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who lay on his bed. And so the point is, here it is, it's, it's the heat of the day. In this culture, you take a nap, you go to sleep, right? This is Ishbosheth's house. There's no other place that we're supposed to be safe than our own homes. And so this is what's going on. They come about noon. He's sleeping. Verse number six. And they came thither into the midst of the house. Again, this is repeated. 
as though they would have fetched wheat, and they smote him under the fifth rib, and Rechab and Bana's brother escaped. Now watch verse 7. It, it's identical. For when they came into the house, again, making the point, this is where the king lives. This is where he's supposed to be safe. This is where he was sleeping for a nap. He lay in his bed, in his bedchamber. And they smote him, and slew him, and beheaded him, and took his head, and gat them away through the plain all night. And here's the point he's making. The point is this. What these men did was incomprehensible. They were not only cowards. This event was tragic. Um, it, was, it, was, it was wicked. He can't believe that this just took place, and that's what has happened. That's the event. Now, the deed is done. We can tell already that these are real macho men, right? A man's man. Two guys kill a coward in his bed while he's sleeping. And now they encounter the king. Verse number 8. This is their presentation. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David to Hebron and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy, which sought thy life, and the Lord hath avenged my lord, the king, this day of Saul, and his seed. Now I want you to notice four things about these men um, that's revealed by this presentation. Here's the first. These brothers had a knack for stating the obvious. Okay? I got an illustration. I hope don't be alarmed when you see this. I'm warning you right now if you're, you're weak of heart from medication. Don't be alarmed about, about what's about to happen, okay? It's for the sake of just an illustration. Ahead. Okay? Okay. okay. And of course, it's a fake head, so I just want to make the point. Okay. These brothers have an act for stating the obvious. And you need to picture this, because this is what it said. They come into the King David and say, Behold! Ahead! Okay, listen. David is a military man. He's a king. He's a poet. He plays music. He's not a doctor. But I don't think you need to be told that this is a head. It's, they're saying the obvious. And not only is this a head, they say, Behold the head of Ishbosheth. Okay? David would have known this was the head of Ishbosheth. It was his brother in law. Okay? So, th- so these fellows have a, a knack for stating the obvious. The obvious. They were certainly captains, Captain Obvious. Okay, that's what they were, Captain Obvious. Number two, they have a knack for speaking too much. Back in verse 8, they make this presentation, but they say nothing about the house and the bed and the king sleeping. Look at verse number 11, because it gives us some clarity, because this is what David knows from just this short exchange in verse number 8. He says, how much more than wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own bed upon his in his own house upon his bed. And, and obviously, what we find in 8 was just a small section of what they actually said. Because in verse 11, David already knows that they said, hey, he was on his bed, he was napping, we snuck in, and we killed him and beheaded him. They spoke too much. Is it any wonder? The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 10, in the multitude of words, there wanteth not sin. And again, we're reminded in this speaking engagement that our words always reveal our heart. What's inside our heart? Evil, profane, wicked. You let people talk long enough, it comes out. You sit down with somebody, and you just let them talk. Let them talk for an hour. And I promise you, after an hour, you will know what's in their heart. Good, bad, and ugly. It's there. There's a connection between our heart and what we say. You ought to listen to yourself as you speak. 
because it doesn't just slip out. When you yell at your wife, you're like, well, she made me. It's not like the word just sort of magically came and like, whoop, whoop, whoop. It's not how it happens. It was in here. And that irritation brought that out. These men were evil, and they could not help themselves. Their evil deeds came out through their mouth. So they had a knack for speaking too much. Thirdly, they had a knack for being sinful opportunists. Okay, we're all grown-ups here. Why in the world will they cut this guy's head off, take it to David, and hold it up for him to see? What were they after? Do you know? Reward, money, position, right? Saul's kingdom is ending. They know it. The writing is on the wall. And so they say, listen, brother, here's an opportunity to continue our way of life, our promotion. We get some money on this deal. We kill this guy, and we're in good shape. They were sinful opportunists. Now listen to me. There is nothing wrong with opportunity. Nothing. A matter of fact, God brings opportunity into the lives of his people. We see it throughout all of Scripture. Remember the story of Esther in Esther chapter 4? Mordecai says, hey, there's a decree. All the Jews will be killed. And don't you think for one minute, because you're the queen, it's not coming to you. And then he says this, but do you know that you may have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? This is an opportunity for you, Esther. God has given you this opportunity. We just finished with 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul says, I'll tell you what, I'm staying in Ephesus. Why? Because a door, a great door has been opened for ministry. I am staying. We find that in Revelation chapter 3, the church of Philadelphia. And God says, I have opened a door that no man can shut. Those are opportunities. And in the life of the church and God's people, we find over and over again, even in our lifetime, opportunities to share the gospel or to, to help human beings in flourishing. Um, I think of Wilberforce and Newton. If you don't know the story, you ought to. Put an end to slavery in Britain. They saved millions of lives. There was a window of opportunity for them to act. And in our lifetime, we have seen God give us opportunities. Um, I want to take you back to 1987. Now, some of you were not born in 19... How many were not born in 1987? You were not born. Okay. Oh, really, Jess? Well, where were you born? Okay, that's good. Whatever. All right. So, some, some of you have no idea what I'm going to talk about. But, but I remember 1987. Uh, I, was, I was in the military, and I remember guarding the east-west German border. Those were the days of the Cold War, right? Soviet aggression. Um, the Berlin Wall spent many nights on that border. And I remember in 87, then President, uh, U.S. President Reagan got up in West Berlin, and he stood there, surrounded by bulletproof glass, worried of, uh, afraid of uh, East Berlin snipers. And he gave that great speech, you remember? Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It was, it was an amazing event. And two years later, when you were born, all right, the wall came down. And when it did, I was in a Bible institute. I was out of the service. And I remember guys in my class saying, the Soviet Union is open. And we're going to take the gospel there. It was a window. And they did. And they've been serving now for 25 years, sharing the gospel in, in former Soviet bloc countries in Eastern Europe. There was a window of opportunity. And guys saw it, and they jumped on it, 
And God used that. And I tell you, believer, for us in this day and age, we have windows of opportunity for the glory of God, for the gospel, and for the good of human flourishing. I believe we're at a, at a point in our lives right now that we can make a difference. Of course, with the gospel. But maybe it's time to put an end to the slaughter of millions and millions of innocent babies. Right? It's all over the place now. The truth is out. It's been exposed. And this may be an opportunity for God's people to finally say, this is enough. This is enough to murder innocent children. Don't miss our opportunity. I'm fearful that many of us, we become incensed by something that we see on, on Facebook or social media, and then the next day we watch a cat video of them falling off the counter, and it's all gone. That's how fickle we are today. Nothing wrong with opportunity. Listen, you had an opportunity for ministry. You had an opportunity to make a difference. You had an opportunity for promotion. For, what, for the deal of the century, take the opportunity. But that's not what these men did. These men were evil. They were selfish. Selfish ambition. They seized uh, this opportunity by the destruction of someone else's life. And Christian, we don't operate like that. We're people of integrity. You don't step on someone's head as you climb the corporate ladder. It's not Christianity. So nothing wrong with opportunity, but these guys were an, had a knack for a sinful opportunity. And then the only the last thing I want you to notice about them is they had a knack for sorry theology. Sorry theology. It's interesting that they say to David, David, the Lord has delivered your enemies, and he has used us to do it. We are an instrument of God. This is our theology for David. And they use God and his word to explain their wicked actions. I know this is common in the world. Lost people do this all the time. They take a scripture, they take a truth from the Bible, and they use it for their own benefit. Let me give you an example. Have you heard this one lately? Judge not, lest ye be judged. Okay. People who use that have never read that chapter. Uh, did you judge this morning? Uh, how, far would, how long would it take you to stop the car at that red light? I hope so. Did you judge this morning whether you looked like Garbage, or you looked halfway decent. Some of you didn't, but to look halfway decent <laughs> to come to church. We, we make judgment calls all the time. All the time. We judge good and evil. We judge right and wrong. There's no way around this. And that the world takes and says, oh, Christian, quiet. Judge not, lest you be judged. I love what Paul Washer said. He said, twist not scripture, lest you be like Satan. That's exactly what happens. We're called to make righteous judgment calls. And I know the world does this, but can I tell you something? Christian people do this as well. We have a sorry theology that we take God's word and his promises and we twist them to justify our own behavior. And it happens all the time. Let me tell you something that makes me physically sick. When a Christian says to me, well, God, this is a theology, God just wants me to be Happy. Okay, Joel Olstein, listen to me. Is, is that really your thing? That, that God is more concerned about your, your happiness? Is his end game? Is, is that what this is about? Can I tell you something this morning? God is more concerned about your Christian character than your comfort. 
Because his end game is not to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. His end game is to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. you got Christian people saying, well, God wants me to be happy, therefore... I'm leaving my spouse, I'm leaving my kids, because God wants me to be happy. Nonsense. That's not only bad theology, that's wickedness. Don't be taking God's word and twisting it for your theology. Your theology is wrong when you do that. Don't use God's word and the person of God to justify your sinful actions. Stop it. And don't use them when things are good. Listen, okay, I know I'm going to offend a bunch of you. It's okay. You'll get over it. Um, maybe not. I don't know. Oh, praise God. He is so good. Our kids won their soccer game. Can I tell you something? God is good whether your kids win the soccer game or not. Is he only good when, when your kids win the soccer? Is that how lame our Christianity is? But can I tell you something? Losing has greater lessons anyways. Winning's easy. Who can't do that? We cheat to do that. What about losing? The lessons you learn in losing. And so be careful with this theology that's completely wrong. Wrong. That's what they did. Now, that was their presentation, and much is exposed about their lives. But let me give you now the, the reaction of the king. Look at verse number 9, if you would, this morning. Verse number 9 of our text. David hears their reply, and uh, they talk to him. And he replies now in verse number 9, And David answered Rechab, Benana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Berthite, and said unto him, As the Lord liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity. Here's the first thing David does. David says, wait a minute, let me correct your theology. Your theology is wrong. It wasn't you that God used to save my kingdom. The truth is, God is the one who's taken care of me. It is not the arm of flesh that I trust. It is the God of heaven. A matter of fact, he tells us in Psalm uh, 121, verses 1 and 2, he says, I look to the hills for much of my salvation. Where does my help come? Verse number 2. It comes from the God of heaven, the maker of heaven and earth. And David says, wait a minute, boys. Your theology is wrong. It's it, dead wrong. He corrects their theology. And number two, he now administers justice. Verse number 10, he says, When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, and I took hold of him and slew him in Ziglag, who thought that I would have given him a reward for his tidings? How much more when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed? Shall I not therefore now require the blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? From the earth. And he executes justice and judgment. Let's just do this before we finish up this morning. Let's just sort of, sort of phase out of this and, and look at what just happened. And remember I talked about the idea of foreshadowing when we see things in the Bible. We see now David the king meeting out justice. It reminds us this morning that the, the king of heaven will meet out justice. Can I tell you something? Christian people will take a beating. They will. Christian people will suffer injustice. Things will not go your way often. 
And for many of us, we want to quit when that happens. That's not God's plan. He wants us to remember that he ultimately will make all things right. Uh, If you have your Bibles this morning, and you should, Romans chapter 8, just one of those verses that we always go to for comfort. I want you to see something here when it comes to the idea of justice for the believer. Romans chapter 8, you know it well. Jump down, if you would, to verse number 35. It's a great chapter. You know this verse. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul is talking to believers saying, hey, listen, life can get tough and, and problematic, and it can be bad sometimes, but who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? And then he says, shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Now watch this. Do you know why he, well, go on back. Do you know why he just mentioned those things in verse 35? What shall separate from the love of Christ? Shall these things? Because these things happen to Christians. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, sword, death. So he's saying, listen, as you live, will this separate us from God? Go on to verse number 36. He says, as it is written, just so you you missed it, for thy sake we are killed all the day long as sheep going to slaughter. That's not very encouraging for Romans chapter 8. And then look what he says. Nay, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And the point is this. Christian, you will take a beating. You will suffer injustice. You might just find yourself in peril, famine, nakedness, and sword. But will it separate us from God? Never, because we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, through Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate us. And, by the way, he will make all things right. That's hope for the believer. You go back to Revelation chapter 6, and, and you remember the story, it's the fifth, I think it's the fifth seal is open, and, and the souls are underneath the altar saying, Lord, how long? How long before justice is served? And Jesus says, a little while, and all things will be made right. And so David reminds us that our king someday will mete out justice to all. Now, as we close, I want you now just to take a moment And I want you to think about this story. And I mean really think about it. I want you to envision what just took place in this encounter with David. Here were two men that came before the king. And they come before him. Here they are. David, the head of your enemy. We have it. God's delivered you. Look what we did for you. And you know as they're standing there, they are waiting for reward, for promotion, for riches, for applause. David, we know this is what you wanted, and we did it. And here they stand, full of arrogance, thinking that they knew the heart of the king. And David now begins to speak. And he says, it's interesting, fellas. This happened before. And the guy came to me, and told me Saul was dead, and he thought he was getting a reward. Now think with me. You're standing here with the head, waiting for the reward, and you start to hear David speak, and and, and something is like, you know, this doesn't sound the way I thought it would go. Right? And he says, how much more when wicked men? Can you now feel the cold sweat beating on their brow? And their heart racing. 
when he says, how much more? Wicked men? And I can see them holding the head, and as they hear this, and their heart races, and now them, them realizing that what they thought the king desired, he did not desire, this happening. Maybe to the side, maybe behind their back, maybe on the ground. In that moment, they realized that what they thought the king desired was the furthest thing from the truth. And that decision that they thought would bring reward and fame and position and a cushy government job will be their demise. It's terrible. It, I, I mean, we read the story, and sometimes I don't think, do, do, could you just stand there, like recap for a moment, and think, this is it, man. This is my golden ticket, the Willy Wonka factory. I want it all, baby. I'm going into the king's house. And as he hears this, realizing you've made a colossal mistake, you did not know the king's heart and desire. It's tragic. I, I mean, tragic. Think about it for a moment. Think about being those two men. How not understanding what the king desired was their death. I want to show you something in Matthew chapter 7 this morning that is far more terrifying than what those two boys heard that day. Matthew chapter 7, look if you would at verse number 21. This is the words of Jesus Christ, the King of glory, the God of heaven and earth. He says in verse number 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of the Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, and you need to get this, because in that day means judgment day. It means in that day when every man and every woman will stand before a holy, righteous, omnipotent, all-knowing God that day, which is coming. Many will stand before me in that day. And listen to what they say to the Lord. They're standing there. They're ready. They're ready for reward. They're ready for entrance. They're ready for the kingdom. They've done a lot of good things. Here's what they say. Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. Lord, we're ready. We've lived our life doing what we believed would please you. And listen to the words that they hear. This is what Jesus says. And that I will profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Ready? Look what I've done. I've got the rewards. And then the speech begins, and you feel the cold sweat on your brow, and your heart starts to race, knowing that you have miscalculated. It wasn't your good works. It wasn't your religion. It wasn't because you made a profession of faith when you were five years old because someone scared you, and there was never any fruit afterwards. It's not because you were baptized or sprinkled or because you're good in the community. None of that. None of it. 
And yet you're expecting, because of that, they're going to enter into your reward. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me. What you failed to realize was the heart of the Father. You thought eternal life was wrapped up in you. Listen to John chapter 17, verse 3. This is what Jesus said. This is life eternal. That you might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I, I don't care what you think or what's going to get your rewards or how you're going to get in, right? That's not the heart of the Father. The heart of the Father is he gave the Son. He died for you. He died for me. And it's only through repentance and faith that I can ever please God by accepting his finished work on Calvary. And for some of you folks, on that day, when you thought you knew the king's heart, it will be the most tragic day of eternity for you. Those men under David lost their lives. You will lose your soul. Sobering, isn't it? You better be careful. You better know the king's heart's desire. His desire is not that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But you've got to repent. Now, Christian, so smug, aren't we? Oh, we know God's heart. We know his desire. I'm born again. I'm saved. I repent it. Let me ask you, do you know the heart of your king? Do you know what he desires from you? Do you know what pleases him? Do you know what he hates? I had a woman years ago. I was either with Bob or Mr. Brisson calling. The woman that came to, she came, to, she, she came to visit our church, preach a message. When we went to visit her on a Thursday morning, she said, I got a beef to pick with you or a bone to pick. Maybe a beef or bone, I don't know. They're both good. I, I, I'm going to pick this bone or whatever. I said, what? She said, you said something wrong on Sunday. Okay, what'd I say? You said that you hated something. I said, okay, what'd I say? You said you hated worms. And no Christian should hate anything or anybody. Well, thank you. I'm sorry that you're so offended that I hate worms. I do hate worms. I'd rather fish with shrimp than a worm. Shrimp are clean. Worms are dirty. Okay, they smell. Stuff oozes out of them. Right? I'm sorry. I'm a wimp. But I had to say, man, I, I appreciate what you said, but do you know that God hates some things? God hates things. If you doubt that, go to Proverbs chapter 6. He says, six things that the Lord hates, seven are abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, causing discord, right? There are some things that God hates. And if I know him, truly know him, not just about him, but if I know him, I know what he hates, and I then hate what he hates. This morning, Christian, do you hate sin? And I'm talking now about your sin. Not, not your neighbor's sin. That's easy to hate their sin. They're wicked sinners. But your sin. What about that pet sin that you have? What about the one that you keep on going back to and making excuses for? You know God hates that? Do you hate it? And if you don't, what I'm telling you is you don't know the heart of your king. Because he knows that all sin destroys. All of it. Do you hate injustice? There should be times when you watch the news that you are sick and mad and angry. Angry at injustice and violence and racism and all of it. It should make our blood boil. That's Christianity. 
Or you're just comfortable doing your thing. Everything's cool. It's not. You hate hypocrisy. Church is full of hypocrites. Yeah, hypocrites are everywhere, man. And they're at your work. They're in your family. They're, at your, they're everywhere. You hate it, though? Jesus did. Jesus was more upset at religious people than anybody else because they were hypocritical. It wasn't that they were struggling in sin and trying to get, that wasn't it. They were pretending to be something they weren't. Do you love what he loves? Do you love lost souls? And you see people. Do you know that there's, there's a living soul that will spend eternity in one of two places? Do you, do you love them? Enough to say something? To invite? To encourage? To read their Bible? To take a track? Do you love the church? And not this. This is, this is, this is not the church. This is a church. Do you know Christ loved the church? Do you know he died for the church? Do you know he shed his blood for the church? She is her, his bride. Do you love her, or do you just dismiss her? Do you love the church? Christ loves the church. Do you love the outcast, the underdog, the marginalized? Do you love righteousness and truth? I think there are too many of us as believers that we think we know what the king wants, <laughs> and, and we should. He is the expressed image, the glory of God. In him, all fullness dwells. We have his word. We have the spirit. We have truth. We ought to know. And when we do know, we will love what he loves. We'll hate what he hates. And let me encourage you this morning as we leave this place. Don't be mistaken. My friend, if you don't know Christ, don't think that you know what will please God when you stand before him someday. Because you don't. Our default setting is always human reason. Well, my good will outweigh my bad. That's not... That's not in here. <laughs> they sound really good. Not in here. I come in the merits of Jesus Christ. My good is bad. You better not gamble on that. And believe it this morning, when we become before the king, you know his heart. You know what pleases him. And if you do, then why do you suppose that you can give him something else when you already know what he expects. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.